Well, brethren, if you would open your Bibles to 1 John, the first epistle, the first letter of John. Good to see all of our visitors here. The, the Maxons have multiplied yet again. It's good to have your mom here, Brother Frank. We have not seen her in a long time. What a delight to have you with us. Yeah, and uh, Ben and all the rest. Wow, good to have you here. We're thankful for that. All right. <clears throat> We're going to read verses 7 through 11. Verses 7 through 11 of chapter 2. <clears throat> We've gone back and forth between verses 9 through 11 and then back to 7 through the rest. We want to get a good sense one more time for the context of what's being said here. <clears throat> if you will stand with me, we will read that passage. Brethren, this is God's holy word. May the blessed spirit enlighten our hearts as we read and hear it expounded. Beginning in verse 7 of chapter 2. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him, that is Christ, and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith, he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. And there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Amen. Holy Father, this is thy word. Send thy spirit to illumine our hearts to hear thee and to walk in it. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Little children, love one another. For God is love. That is one of John's main themes. And it runs throughout this entire first letter. And the apostle emphasizes that everyone who loves his brother or sister in Christ knows God, the fountain of love. 
Likewise, everyone who hates his brother or sister in Christ does not know God, whatever their profession. The absence of love for Christ's people, listen carefully, the absence of love for Christ's people is biblical evidence that a person does not know God and has not been born of God's Spirit. No true knowledge of God can exist in a heart that does not express love for Christ's people. That is a fundamental, non-negotiable point in John's letter. And this sacred letter not only reveals that God is love, but that all his works are done in love. A love so great that God gave his only begotten son to be the propitiation, the appeasement, the sacrifice that turns away wrath for our sins. What greater love can we imagine that the God whose wrath would damn us turned away his own wrath by pouring it out upon his son? John the disciple, whom Jesus loved, drank deeply of Christ's love, preached fervently of Christ's love, and practiced faithfully Christ's love among the Lord's disciples. He didn't just hear it and say, oh, that was nice. He didn't just get an emotional charge. He understood that love is a noun and love is a verb. And those who are possessed of true love, the noun, are also inseparably connected to the action of it, to the action of love. You can talk about the noun love, but unless it is an active force in your life, your Christian testimony means nothing. That's what John is telling us. You're still in the dark. That's astounding. And for our day, a very powerful warning. We want love as God is. We want love as God does. And we want to reflect that love. John expected and exhorted Christ's people to love in the same way as Christ. Why? Because he learned from Christ, love one another as I have loved you. He didn't just hear the words. He practiced the life. John plainly declares that the absence of that love means that we have no claim to be the children of God. So then, the title of our message is Loving or Hating Christ's People. This is part four. I'm sorry for those of you that have not been here for parts one through three, One through three primarily laid 
the foundation for what we are moving toward this evening. I don't know whether there will be a part five or not. <clears throat> but I will say, may our God, who is love, may our heavenly Father, who has shown his love, shed his spirit abroad in our hearts this evening with the love of God. And may our hearts turn with renewed love to Christ, our blessed Savior. How we need him. So, uh, again, I'm sorry I do not have an outline for you. But we left off under this heading last time. The definition and description of love itself. We began in part three uh, by examining the definition and description of love, what it is and what it does. <clears throat> love defined. We concluded that spirit wrought love could be defined this way as the self denying, self sacrificing, others oriented act of treating others according to God's law at our expense for their well-being. I'll repeat that. That's lengthy. But it covers essentially what we hear from our Savior in the Gospels and what we heard from Paul in Romans chapter 13. <clears throat> The kind of love we are talking about is a self-denying, self-sacrificing, others-oriented act of treating others according to God's law at our expense for their well-being. Quite remarkable that we live in a day when many Christians hear the word law, they don't relate it to love. When in fact, Christ himself said that all the books of the Old Testament were about one thing. Loving God and loving your neighbor. The entire thing is about love. We need laws to tell us what love is. Because otherwise, we would simply be governed by how we feel about people. And that would mean there wouldn't be too many that we love. So, <clears throat> having defined it, we next went to the description of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, sometimes called the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8 tell us what love should look like as we manifest it as Christ's people. <clears throat> Since love is of God, we may conclude that Paul's descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 are all manifestations of God's love. 
There's so many various rays of light shining down on the prism and refracting into so many colors. They are all aspects of love. And I'm sure that this is not all there is that could be said. But we'll spend the rest of our lives attempting to live what is said. While the authorized version uses the word charity in that passage, we should understand that it means Christian love. That's the idea. This is what Paul is driving home. What is Christian love? What does it look like? He says, without it, I am nothing. Without it, I am nothing. Paul's spirit list of love's characteristics should move our hearts to examine our thoughts about love. We use the word love all the time. But do we think of it in the terms that Paul was thinking of it? Do we think of it in terms of the way Christ lived it, thought of it, spoke it? It isn't what you think love means. It's what God says love is. And how, if it's there, it should be acting. We are far too submerged in a culture that views love almost entirely as how you feel. And while love, genuine love, can and often has the greatest of feelings, <clears throat> it's not simply a feeling itself. Sometimes in the past, I have made that point so strong that uh, some, uh, including some of our young people, have thought that I was saying that feelings are always wrong. That's not true. That's certainly not what I mean to convey. What I generally try to make clear is that you should not be governed by your feelings, especially as it comes to the issue of love. If it's not defined God's way, your feelings may be off-center at best, completely absent at worst. We need to love like God's love, uh, like God loves. That's exactly what Christ was telling us. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That means we're seeing love as it ought to be lived by human beings. <clears throat> So I repeat, even though the authorized version uses the word charity, and it certainly uh, does mean love, uh, it, it's not talking about the act of giving to the poor. That's, that's not uh, the way the word charity is being used here. But we, when we read that, we should think Christian love. When Christ commanded to love like he loves, this is what it looks like. And again, this is not exhaustive. But it gives us a clear enough picture that we all, upon self-examination, have to say, Lord, help me to love. Help me to love. Help me not just to talk about love. Help, help me not to lower what it is by not living according to your word. 
<clears throat> so, we covered a number of these aspects of love last time. Christian love suffereth long. It demonstrates patience despite difficulties. That's what it means. Uh, we say patient. A lot of times it just means we're trying not to get aggravated by somebody. It's a lot more than that. I would include that. Uh -uh. But under difficulties, under stress, under pressure, it is trusting the sovereignty of God. It is trusting the love of Christ for us. It is believing his word and responding with grace and mercy and love. Love is kind. Believers in Christ are to provide something beneficial for others out of goodness and out of mercy and out of love because this is what God did for us. He gave his only begotten son and it was in kindness. In other words, it was goodness poured out and we should be fountains of goodness poured out. Do things for other people, not with an attitude of, well, I've got to do this, but because we choose to and do it in kindness. <clears throat> May those born of his spirit reflect that long-suffering, that patience to Christ's people is one of the things Christ was talking about. It's what Paul's talking about. Because, now, why is he saying all of this? He doesn't just uh, get down a lexicon or a, a, a dictionary and, and start thinking, okay, what are some nice things I can say about God that we all ought to do for each other? He's talking to a church in Corinth that is coming apart at the seams. They're all split up. They're divided. When you see that kind of division... You see the power of the enemy working on the flesh of God's people. They're divided instead of standing as one. They're dividing up under the, 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 the preachers that they think are better than the others. They're divided on numerous things. And they think they're wise on top of that. They really think they're wise. But they're, they're coming drunk to the Lord's Supper. They're eating up the food and, and not leaving enough for the poor. They're arguing about all kinds of things. They're taking each other to law court. So Paul is speaking directly into that situation. And it comes across the centuries to us. These are real things that he's addressing by saying this is what love does. And I'm not seeing it very well there in you all right now. Oh, my friends, brothers and sisters, God is patient with us. So uh, we also saw that Christian love envieth not. It does not express negative feelings over a brother or sister's achievement or success. It does not set its heart on the gifts, the abilities, the beauty, the wealth, the education, or anything else that someone else has. 
That's not Christian love. That's just plain old stinking flesh. That's all it is. Sinful. Love, Christian love, vaunteth not itself. It does not heap praise on oneself or exhibit self-importance. How utterly unlike Christ that is. And the Corinthians were really puffed up. He tells them that. That's why he says, Christian love is not puffed up. It's not filled with pride, nor does it have an exaggerated self-conception. Well, I'll tell you what, we all live with that exaggeration. Everybody in here. <clears throat> You'll say, oh, I'm really bad. I'm really this. I'm really that. And then if somebody's really wise and knows you well and says, yeah, but how about this? Well... I'm not that bad. That's an exaggerated self-conception. You're bad enough to go to hell. How bad is that? No, we don't want to be puffed up on what we think we are. When God loves us, and he does, he shows us our weaknesses, our limitations, our sins, so that we will turn to him and trust him and see his love for us in Christ Jesus. And when we receive that love, we pour it out on others. In other words, under this idea of being puffed up, it is uh, what Paul said this is what Paul was driving at when Paul said, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. In other words, when he says walk worthy, it doesn't mean he's, that we're earning something. It's saying, <clears throat> if your name is Maxon, you know and love your parents. You want to live in a way that does not dishonor them. And they have left a wonderful legacy for you. Don't live in a way that's unworthy of that legacy. That's the idea here. I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation. In other words, you've been called to Christ. Walk like a Christian. Reflect Jesus Christ. Uh -uh. The vocation wherewith ye are called. Follow the Lamb. With all lowliness and meekness. Meekness here means submission to God's wise and sovereign providence. It doesn't mean weakness. With long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Well, now we take off where we left off. That's where we left it. So the next... Uh, aspect of love that, that Paul sets before us is that it doth not behave itself unseemly. The Holy Spirit wants us to understand that Christian love does not behave shamefully, indecently, or disgracefully. Jesus Christ, as he walked on this planet, did everything 
that his father commanded him to do, which included going to the cross. We cannot find any place in the scriptures where he did something unchristian. We don't ever see him getting, quote, bent out of shape, having a bad day. I was sleeping in the boat and you woke me up. He didn't do that. He got up and stilled the storm. We don't ever see him acting unseemly. His love should be reflected by his people. Uh -uh. In other words, a person born of God's spirit should not act contrary to standards of decency. Christ's covenant community should love one another. To treat one another. In fact, love them so that they would not act in shameful ways towards them. He uses the Corinthians for an, uh, an example for us and for his people throughout the ages. It was shameful for people to be showing up at the Lord's Supper drunk. That's shameful for a Christian. That's indecent. <clears throat> they, were, they were selfishly pigging out on the food that was generally there to be shared by all, especially for the poor brothers and sisters. That's indecent. That is disgraceful. That's shameful. We shouldn't be engaged in those things that go against what are obvious Christian standards, or even if our culture has them anymore, even good standards in our culture. We shouldn't use language like the world does. Foul language, angry language, profane language, nasty toilet language. We could go on. The, li the list is longer than I would be able to count. Commentator Richard Hayes says this uh, about this particular aspect of Christian love. Quote, Paul uses the cognate noun in Romans 1.27 to characterize the shameful act of male homosexual activity. Now, Corinth was known for this. In the context of 1 Corinthians, Paul's use of the term here probably also reflects the sexual misconduct that he has condemned in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, incest. In chapter 6, 12 through 20, fornication. The Corinthians were having serious problems with immorality. And he says, wait, this is not worthy of what you're called to. This is not Christian love. In fact, all of these acts commonly referred to as love are nothing of the sort. They are not love. 
They are rebellion against God's law. Hayes goes on to say, as well as the shameful, quotation marks, behavior of women prophesying with heads uncovered and the humiliation of the poor at the Lord's Supper. All these Corinthian offenses would constitute the sort of acting shamefully that Paul sees as contrary to love. Close quote. I think he has his finger on some very important thoughts here. Brethren, we don't have to use four-letter words to use words that are unnecessary. Actions. There are times and places where certain actions that might be fine in our home would not be fine in a gathering of the Lord's people. We have to learn that there is such a thing as context, even for our lives. The world is watching you. Fathers, your children are watching you. Your wife is watching you. There are things that in your home might certainly be the standard and the norm, but would not necessarily be at my house. We would have to think about those things. What would you say? What would you do? When I go into someone's home uh, for the first time, I sit. I'm glad to answer questions, but I'm trying to take everything in. Because what if the pastor said this and that was offensive to them? You have to realize that virtually nobody thinks like you do. We shouldn't be indecent. We shouldn't act shamefully. We shouldn't act disgracefully. Well, seeketh not her own. Christian love does not seek her own. This means that love, Christ-like love, God-like love is not self-seeking. And our culture is all about cultivating self-seeking. <clears throat> Christian love does not put itself first when interacting with others. That's hard for us to get a hold of, y'all. Christ is the perfect model here. Romans chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Let's hear that again. Those are God's words. Let every one of us, if you profess to be a Christian here tonight, God is talking to you. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself. Well, there's the model. There's no telling day in and day out, walking with the twelve, what he was exposed to. And yet, his goal was not to say, okay, you've been calling me Lord, when are you going to start acting like this? Now, he did make his lordship clear and plain. But at the same time, what he did 
even when rebuking Peter, was for their edification. For their edification. We choose friends often because mm, they like us back. And that's not Christian love. It's okay to like people and to have them like you back. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. But this kind of love is all about pleasing others. There may be something that I have to alter at my house to please my neighbors. Now, it doesn't mean ever bending anything Christ has commanded us. It doesn't mean that. But whether it be our spouse, our children, our neighbors, and especially our brothers and sisters in the congregation, what we should come in the door thinking is edifying our brethren and not coming in to say, I'm going to take over the conversation today and convince everybody to believe like I do. I'm coming in to encourage and build up God's people. That's the idea of edification is building up. You want to build them up in the faith. Now, true enough, there are times when we must discuss convictions. A conviction that we believe arises from God's word. It's perfectly fine for us to talk about those things. But for the purpose of edifying, not winning the argument. We're going to stand for what we believe is right. And you should. You're con you should follow your conscience. But at the same time, <clears throat> you should be thinking about uh, edifying in the way that you're speaking and talking. There's talking down to people and there's talking to people. <clears throat> well, Christian love does not insist on its own way but seeks the good of brothers and sisters in Christ. It always seeks to do what is most glorifying to God and most encouraging to God's children. There are times that edification can mean not taking up that argument that's going on. Maybe just waiting a while and then trying to come back to it again with wisdom and grace. Edification. Self-seeking is the opposite of Christian love. And again, you came into the world self-seeking. And you came into a culture that loves to pour the gas on that flame. It's all about self. It's all about me. It's all about me time. <clears throat> well, Christian love is not easily provoked. It does not become quickly or easily provoked to anger. That's pretty much the idea. There are people that have virtually no fuse. It's just a button. You bump into it and it goes off. <clears throat> that's, not, that's not manifesting Christian love. Just imagine the patience of Jesus with a group of disciples that he's handpicked. One of them was a tax collector. Well, the Jews hated the tax collectors because they were lackeys for Rome. They took advantage of their own people and got wealthy doing it. They hated tax collectors. Jesus chose one. 
and one of the others was a zealot. The zealots were all for overthrowing Rome. Now tell me, what conversations do you think they had? And yet that's the kind of people Jesus chose and said, now love like I'm loving you. Let's be honest. We want to go into a room and find a room full of people like me. Wow, what a great place. No, it wouldn't be a great place. You need people that rub your rough corners because that's what God intends. And you're to edify them and they're to edify you. When that's happening among a group of people, you'd be astounded at what you see change. Be careful of the click seduction. I've just got my four little people. Sunday is just me and my four friends. No, it's not in God's eyes. Christian love thinks no evil. Christian love does not devise evil against someone. But there's another aspect of that. It doesn't listen to evil about someone. That changes the picture, doesn't it? It's not just about not devising evil towards some. And there are those who do that in various ways. But it also means that you don't listen to someone stirring evil up about someone else. You should look them in the face and say, why are you telling me that? Why are you telling me that? You don't know, and very often they don't know, if what they're telling you has been vetted and is actually the truth. But we'll believe it, especially if we're upset with somebody. We'll believe it. In fact, if you've, if you've got a grudge towards somebody, you're upset with somebody, you'll believe just about anything someone will say about them. And that's tragic. And that is not the way Christian love responds. It thinketh no evil. <clears throat> it attempts at all times to think the best of God's people. And we don't do that by nature. We just don't do that. Every now and then you run into somebody who's optimistic. They don't believe anything about anybody. But when you get down to reality, we have to admit that it's easy to think evil of others. If you sit and listen day after day after day to conservative talk show hosts, you are believing a catalog of vices, failings, sins, and perversions of people that are running our country that might be true, but do you know that they are? Do you know that they are? And when you sit and think that way all the time, listening to that kind of thing, it's amazing how you superimpose it on those around you. I'm telling you, brethren, ask yourself how much time you're giving to what people you cannot verify how much you're listening to people that you cannot verify and how much time are you spending in God's word who has proved himself? What's shaping your thinking? 
Christian love thinketh no evil. Jonathan Edwards says here about this, that a Christian spirit is contrary to a censorious spirit. Now, we don't use that word much anymore, but censorious means being severely critical of others. He's saying that the Christian spirit is contrary to that. I, I, I will tell you, every family, every office place, every congregation has its critical people. And they're critical over any and everything. It's not encouraging, is it? Have you ever been around someone who, once you start talking in fellowship with them, all of a sudden the list of everybody's faults starts showing up? This is not Christianity. Do you know it's true? If it's true, then does that drive you to pray for the person? Say, oh Lord, if such and such is true about someone, would you have mercy on them? Would you encourage them? They profess to know you. Give them strength. Help me to go and encourage them in the things of the Lord. What do you think Christ would do there? Thinketh no evil. In other words, Jonathan Edwards says, it is contrary to a disposition uncharitably to judge others. Well, number five, rejoiceth rejoiceth not in iniquity. Those born of God's spirit do not delight or find joy in acts of wickedness in themselves. They certainly shouldn't in others. They long for their lives to be filled with the fruit of the spirit. And you should be praying that for your brothers and sisters. It's easy for us to get on our knees and say, oh, oh Lord, let me know love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Let me know that. Are you praying that for your brethren? It's the same Holy Spirit that we have. It's perfectly fine to pray that about yourself. But can we, can we also say, oh, Father in heaven, Father in heaven, I don't rejoice in my sins. I cannot rejoice in my brother's and sister's sins. Have mercy upon us. Show us our faults. Help us to look to Christ to wash away our sins and help us to build one another up. Christian love does not rejoice in iniquity. Oh, there's times that I've seen it, brethren. I I hate to say this. But in my years of, of, of being just a Christian in congregations and as being a pastor, there are those that almost delight to hear somebody's done a particular sin because you knew that about them. Instead of somebody tells you, you ought to say, here, take my hand. Let's pray for that brother right now. Do we do that or do we kind of feast on that bit of carrion? on that bit of dead cadaver. Do we know how to manifest Christian love? It rejoices not in iniquity. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. And when we see it in ourselves, the first thing we should do 
is run to Christ. When we see sin in ourselves, don't, don't just go, oh, well, grace, let's move on. Go to Christ and see your sin finished there and praise him and thank him and magnify him and then mount up the war of mortification against that sin. Well, number six, you understand every single one of these aspects could be a sermon in itself. But <clears throat> Christian love rejoiceth in truth, not in iniquity, but it rejoices in truth. Truth is indeed at the heart of the best Christian virtues. The Bible speaks of the God of truth, the Son who is the truth, the spirit of truth, the Bible is the word of truth, and the church is the pillar and ground of truth. We ought to traffic in truth. For a while, when the internet was just getting underway and Christians were getting on it, it seemed like every week, sometimes every couple of days, I would get these uh, emails from well-meaning Christians, and I don't mean that in an insulting way. I mean, they were, they were trying to do good. They were passing this on because they knew that, they, they, uh, that Christians pray. And they'd say, oh, pray for this little girl. I read this story about her in Oklahoma, and this is what's going on with her. And, oh, it's just tragic when we heard it, and somebody sent it to me. I'm sending it to all the people that I know. Send it. You send it to everybody you know. Now, what that was doing was filling up people's mailboxes with lies. Very often, all you had to do was type in the person's name and find out, oh, that was a story from 10 years ago. Christians don't, they don't, they don't get their radar up. Now, I'm not saying everybody, every time someone brings you a prayer request, that you go, is that true? You don't have to, I'm not saying that. Uh, we know each other. You can come and say, my son is sick. Let's pray for him. We don't have to vet that, right? But what they were doing, the people that started these kind of things were enjoying wasting Christians' time and filling up mailboxes with things that simply were not true or they were true a decade ago or five years ago. It's over, you know? And I've, I started sending back to people, do you know if this is true or not? And no one ever said, it is true. I know these people. They said, I don't know. And I said, well, I don't know who you are, and I know you're doing this for good, but I would encourage you to find out whether this is true or not. If you don't take the time for that, why do you want to take my time? We rejoice in truth. There are things we can circulate because we can vet them. We know the source and we understand. Yes, let's be praying about that. We do that regularly here. This brother in the congregation is sick. Let's pray for him. And we can know about other people, other pastors. It can be affirmed to us. But a lot of times, I hate to say it this way. I hope this is not offensive but were easy marks for liars. We should be rejoicing in truth, filled up with truth, and learning to try to discern 
truth and error when we can. We can be fooled, any of us. I can, I, I can still be fooled by some people. But truth is the heart of Christian val values and virtues. The Bible speaks of it. Christians should fill their hearts with God's truth and think according to his truth. The more you think according to his truth, the more you see when lies are coming your way. Or at least you begin to say, you know, I better find out about this before I clamp my mind down on this. I've sucked up a lot of things uh, in reading history and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and then I've asked myself, I wonder how much of that is really true. <clears throat> Jonathan Edwards says here, quote, all true Christian grace tends to holy practice. And that would have to be according to truth. All Christian grace, everything that God gives us, tends in one direction. Holy living. Holy practice. That means we need truth. Make sure you're getting truth. Don't spread rumors just because someone you know is telling you that. If it's about somebody, and I've seen this for years and here. Something begins, it's said about this brother, about that sister, and it starts to float around, and it's like, wait, whoa, 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 hold on. How do you know that's true? And sometimes they'll tell you sheepishly, well, uh, because some, someone told me. I'd find out before you spread that any further. You might be lying. <clears throat> In fact, Edwards goes on to say, quote, Christian practice is the scope and end, meaning goal, of election. In other words, to be holy in every aspect of life is why God has elected you. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we are created unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Uh, so many prayers over the last few months have been, Lord, thank you so much for all of the baptisms that we have had here. <clears throat> All of those baptisms uh, have taken place because there has been actual sitting down with people, hearing their testimonies, hearing what God has done for them, and then obeying the Lord Jesus Christ in the truth according to what he has done. And that fills us with joy. Why? Because it's true. Now, could it be that someone can fall away later on? That's always a possibility, but uh, we're still acting directly according to what Christ has told us to do on the basis of which he has told us to do it. We have verified to the best of our ability. People can always fool you, <clears throat> but Jesus never will. His word never will. His, his word is always the truth. And that's what builds us up. Christian love rejoices in truth. We rejoice to hear the gospel. We rejoice to learn that Jesus is the God-man 
fully God, truly God, truly man in one person. We delight to hear the truth that the Son of Man came into this world to save his people from their sins, that he died upon Calvary's cross. Why won't the atheist bow down to Jesus? Because he doesn't believe the word, which is the word of truth. We know the source. It is the living God. That's fantasy to them. It's life for us. Real love rejoices in truth. <clears throat> well, let me try to condense the rest of this. Paul tells us by the power of the Spirit of God that, that Christian love bears all things. That means, in simple terms, it puts up with difficult, even annoying and irritating things. Goes along with the idea of uh, patience. It bears all things. The idea is carrying a weight. And to carry some folks is a weight. But they're your brothers and sisters. It believeth all things. In brief, we should, because of our love for other believers... Hope the best for them. And defend them to others, even in their faults. Yes, I know. I know that brother can do this or that. But at the same time, he is walking faithfully with the Lord to the best of his ability. Do you ever cover anybody's sins? I don't mean hide a sin in the sense of uh, we're, we're doing something here to keep anybody from knowing that uh, anyone ever sins. I'm not saying that. But I am saying, how do you react when you hear something negative about a brother or a sister? Again, I repeat, if you're upset with them about something already, you probably won't even ask the person who tells you the next negative thing, how do you know? And why are you telling me? I want to walk with my brethren. I want to hold them up and encourage them. Because Christ walks with me in his extraordinary patience every day. Is that not so? It believes all things. We're not, we're not trying to do a cover-up like someone committing a crime or some perverse thing and saying, oh, we're not going to act like that happened. I'm not saying that. I'm just talking about the way you react to what you do when you hear about people. Oh, did you hear about this pastor who did this? No, I haven't heard that till just now. How do you know that? Now, if it's all in the news, you can't miss it, right? But even then, you don't know, <laughs> you don't know how much of the truth they're telling. We live in a world of lies. And let every man, let God be true, but every man a liar. 
Love hopes all things. It never loses hope. Well, there's someone in your family that hasn't professed faith in Christ and it's been 10 years. Well, keep praying. And keep walking in Christ and keep living biblical truth before them and hope, trust the Lord. It, it goes far beyond what I'm saying. I hope you understand this. All of these things get very broad, very broad. Lastly, it endures all things. But think about it. Hope bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It doesn't just go, oh, he did this. Okay, we write them off. Make sure you know what you're talking about and what you're hearing. Finally, it endureth all things. It never, it gives up. It keeps going. We have excommunicated people here. I mean, does everybody understand what that word means? We are saying that by everything we know, according to the word of God, everything that is evidence to us, this person is not a believer. We trusted them. We brought this person in, but they refuse to walk with Christ. They're not repenting of a known sin. They've acknowledged the sin. They're, they're going to go on in the sin. They want their sin and not Christ. What we're saying is we're turning them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh in the hope that their soul would be saved. Perhaps they are truly a believer that has just fallen that far. Perhaps. Lots of discussion about that among God's people. But what I'm saying to you is, of the, of the ones that we have, I have prayed and others have prayed that the Lord would restore them. If they're truly yours, Lord, restore them. Well, we'll stop. I was going to give an application. I will, I will, I will determine whether I just had one because I just wanted to make it as clear as possible that a certain sin can actually have numerous applications. And uh, perhaps we'll have a, a part five. I don't know. I will pray about that. But let's, let's bring all this to an end. At least at this point. The Holy Spirit moved upon the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle John. He's known as the Apostle of Love because he talked about it so much. He learned it from Jesus. He learned it from Jesus. He believed what Jesus said, and he believed what Jesus taught. And I shared that story, the fact that when he was older and he could no longer walk to the gathering of the believers, the brothers, and, uh, the brothers would carry him. They would carry him to the worship services. And as he, as he would walk in, uh, as he was carried in, he would be saying to everybody, little children, love one another. Love one another. And then he would preach. And sometimes that is all he would say. 
love one another. And they would, they would get a little irritated hearing the same thing. Why do you keep saying that? He said, because this is what the master commanded. And he says, and if you get this, it's enough. Because he understood how big that love was. It's these things and much more. If you really get a hold of love, having been loved of God, it will change your life in every area. Not overnight, but there will be a constant growing in that love. That's why your prayer and study of the scripture is so important. If you're not feeding the fire of that love, I can tell you it's starting to wane low. You have to keep that fire going. So brethren, he that hateth his brother is still in darkness. He doesn't know where he's going. But those that walk in love are walking in the light of Christ Jesus. So may God help us all to love as he loved. It'll never be perfect. But it can be identifiable. May God help us to see and manifest it to one another. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, how we thank thee for thy love. It is beyond our comprehension. It's one of the ways it's easy for us to miss it. But Lord, we want to walk in it because Christ did and Christ called us to it. Love us, Lord Jesus. Keep loving us and help us to fire that love for thee by spending the time with thee and with thy people that we need. Now help us to magnify thee in all things. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen. May the Lord wonderfully bless your day of giving thanks tomorrow. Let's go in his name.